Hi, everyone. This is Ron Tugnut. You're listening to Third Line Plug, Sendcast. All right, good to go. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jancy. Tim, how's it going, sir? Uh, it's going pretty good. Looks like we're finally out of the woods with the polar vortex. It's supposed to get a bit warmer over the rest of this week. Yeah, how is the weather out in your guys' neck of the woods? Cold. Yeah. Yeah, and then we got some furniture in on Sunday, so it was interesting uh, having stuff moved into the house with negative 30. Oh, jeez. Yeah, well, I know even here, like, we didn't get minus 30 weather. We'd probably get minus 2, minus 3, but we've got snow. That was not fun. Yeah, because you guys aren't equipped to deal with it. We're not. We're really, we're not fully equipped to deal with snow. Like, we're rain, and that's it. Yeah, pretty much. So, Tim, we got a fully loaded episode today, but before we talk about anything, alert, 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 alert. So, we got a big announcement to make. Jackson Swam from New Era Sends will be joining us March 14th for Season 4, Episode 10, in chronological order, Episode 87, where he'll be doing our first half recap and talking about the games. Yeah, it's always good to get another Sends blogger in to recap the season, make sure well, what we're seeing is what's actually happened. And it's always fun to talk to folks in the community, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, the nice thing about Jackson is the fact that he already does game recaps for New Era Sends, but also he's a fellow Vancouver Islander. So I'm very happy to have somebody somewhat local for the show. <laughs> so, Tim, let's start talking about today's cover athlete because today's episode is Season 4, Episode 5. In chronological order, episode 82, the Martin Straka edition. So, just a little background about Martin Straka. He was drafted 19th overall by the Pittsburgh Penguins in 1992. He spent 15 seasons in the NHL with two stints with the Pittsburgh Penguins, Ottawa Senators, New York Islanders, Florida Panthers, Los Angeles Kings, and the New York Rangers, recording 257 goals, 460 assists for 717 points in 954 games. He was dealt to Ottawa for Norm McIver and Troy Murray in April of 1995 and was later involved in the Wade Redden for Brian Barrard trade in March of 1996. So, you know, when we started Season 4, Tim, we were talking about Pavel Dimitra and we talk about prospects that is the one that got away. I think Martin Strzok definitely is in that category because when you look at his stats in Pittsburgh, I didn't realize like how good numbers he put up in Pittsburgh where he put up a couple of 90-point seasons, and even with New York later in his career, he was getting 70 points every year. Yeah, it's tough, but at the other end, you can't really argue with the work that Wade Redden did in Ottawa, so you got to give up to get in a trade. So I don't really blame the Senators on this one, but yeah, Martin Straka, he's definitely a, more of a footnote in Senators history, but... Yeah, a 95-point season in Pittsburgh in 2001. That's really good stuff. 
It is really good stuff. And the funny thing is, Tim, is that I think of him kind of the way I think of Pavel Dimitri. I think of a guy who put up great numbers, but with just the large talent pool in the NHL at the time, he doesn't really seem to get mentioned as much when talking about the great power, not power forwards, but the uh, the great playmakers of that time. Because when you think about the Peter Forsbergs of the world, you think of, you know, obviously you're talking guys like Paul Correa was, it comes up to nine, but yes, Martin Straka, definitely a great player. I, I do remember him with Pittsburgh a little bit. I think I remember him more just because he wore such an unorthodox number of 82 throughout his career. Yeah. Once he started getting into those high numbers, the amount of people were, especially in the eighties, for whatever reason, like people pick a lot of sixties, people pick a lot of nineties. No one really picks numbers in the eighties. And or the 70s, as we found out. <laughs> yep. And we're going to find out in the 80s, too, because really there's so few players to the Senators that wore 80. But I think the funny thing about that is that when Jacques Martin came in, he didn't want guys wearing high numbers. And that's why Alexander Degg went from 91 to 9. That's why you saw Radic Bonkel from 76 to 14. That's kind of why. And I think Martin Strack kind of would have been in the same boat. But... You know, and I was thinking about this today because, and you're absolutely right, there wasn't too many players in the NHL that wore in the 80s. Obviously, Eric Lindros wore 88, Alexander McGillney wore 89, Crosby wore 87. But other than that, the only thing I could really know about Martin Straka, what the hell was Mike Milbury thinking, giving him up for nothing? When you really think about it, because he was involved with that trade, and they put him on waivers, and he went to Florida. Mike Milbury does Mike Milbury things. We should know this. I I know, but still, though, that's such a stupid, stupid move, especially in retrospect. But then again, we're talking about a guy who said, you know, I don't really need this to Daniel Chara or the pick that later get, would get us Jason Spezza. Yes, we'll go after Alexi Yashin, but at the time that made sense because Yashin was coming off 90-point seasons in Ottawa. So I, I kind of see why he made that deal in retrospect. Just doesn't look good when you look back on it. Yeah. For sure. So let's talk about next week's cover athlete poll because next week's episode is season four, episode six in chronological order, episode 83. Now we got two names on the board. We've got Alish Hemsky and Christian Yaros. That's going to be a poll for the age. It's actually, I really do like uh Christian. I do like both players to be honest. Yeah, you know what's funny? When I was looking at who, okay, who we're going to do for episode 83, I totally forgot Hemsky played for us. I remember him as an oiler. <laughs> I, do, I do not remember him as a senator at all. Well, the big thing is, is for a lot of people, Hemsky definitely plays a bit of an outsized place in the memory of Sanders players because Brian Murray wanted Alish Hemsky on the team for so long. And when he finally did get him, the results were good. And then both him and Sp- both Hemsky and Spets were out the door next season. Yeah, I mean Hemsky kind of makes sense because I think he was a UFA anyway in that off season. So yeah, maybe the the value wasn't really there to keep him around. But uh, I don't really recall what they even traded him for now off the top of my head. I think it was just like a third. Okay, so it was probably a third that really didn't turn into anything then. Yeah, we'd have to check her. Yeah. While you're doing that, Tim, last week's episode, but more importantly, we also did two episodes last week. We did season four, episode four, but also we interviewed former Ottawa Senators goaltender, 
Ron Tugnut. So let's talk a little bit about that interview, Tim, because Tugger is definitely a guy that Senators fans will always have a very special place in their hearts for him. I was super, super honored that he agreed to come on the podcast. I was so happy that the interview turned out as well as it did, despite some technical difficulties on his end. Overall, how did you feel that interview went? I didn't know you could remove lactic acid with a needle. Yeah. Like, that interview was just a lot of really fun, really interesting stories from a guy who's basically done almost everything he can in the league without winning a Stanley Cup. Yeah, and I mean, the one thing that I think I really got out of doing that interview, Tim, is we clarified what exactly happened on that Derek Plant goal. Because, I, like I said, I watched it so many times growing up, and I always thought to myself, what really happened? Did that puck go through his glove? Did it bounce off his glove? Like, what happened? And the fact that he said that the glove was so worn down that it went like this, and it bent back. So that was kind of cool that he yeah. could clarify that. It's kind of cool, just like, oh, here's this goal that ended this historic event is due to an equipment failure like that just adds to the legend right it does it does and you know what some of the great stories that we got out of him it's super amazing and i i guess we could probably let the listeners know now that you know maybe in the future former senator senator mark mathot might be coming on the podcast too yeah yeah let's see what we can do we can see what we can do yeah Actually, let's talk a little bit about the other episode that we did, the regular episode. One thing that I take away from that is that you could definitely tell fatigue was setting in with me by that point. But I also think it almost sounded like I was drunk almost at times because I was almost slurring my words at times because, you know, I had that the IPA when I was talking to Tiger and then I had one during the episode. And I listened back and I don't know if it was very noticeable for you, but it was kind of noticeable for me. And I was just like, what the hell are you doing, Tay? Come on. Yeah, I didn't notice it at all, to be honest. So that's why, as you can see, I'm drinking nothing but water. <laughs> okay, I lied. Te- I think technically, my, there's uh, pink, pink lemonade mixed in there, but, you know, it's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I've got my uh, Coca-Cola, so I'm going to be on point. Absolutely. And your lovely wife, Chelsea's in the background. Now, I understand <laughs> that she's she's very, very upset about her Jane Fonda YouTube video being taken down, but... You know what? I did suggest DDP yoga, man. Maybe she would get some use out of that, too. Maybe. You know, I was honestly kind of surprised that they'd go after such an old video. I know, and it's so weird, right? Because those Jane Fonda videos, they're 40 years old now. Like, you would think it would be uh, Billy Blanks' Tybo or some of these crazy videos that... Or, like, P90X or something. Yeah, P90X, Exactly. But, yeah, I mean, for a video that's so old, you'd be really surprised they even went after it. To be fair, those Jane Fonda workouts are actually really well done. I've heard that. You know, I've also heard the Richard Simmons ones are actually not that bad, too. During the first lockdown, when Chelsea and I were confined, it was just the apartment. We couldn't go to the apartment gym, and we didn't have our own home exercise equipment. We were doing, like, Richard Simmons and Jane Fonda just because it's what the space allowed. Yeah. And, yeah, they work. Like Richard Simmons, it's totally low impact stuff. While the Jane Fonda stuff, you're getting you're getting a bit more strength training in there. For something you can do in your living room, it's pretty good. Yeah, that kind of th- <clears throat> excuse me, that's kind of like DDP yoga is that it mixes yoga moves with calisthenics, right? Like push ups, sit ups, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But the fact is that, uh, of course, it was started by Diamond Dallas Page, former pro wrestler. But the fact is that it's helped so many ex wrestlers and. 
ex-military guys who went from being basically crippled to running. And that's really cool. Like if you go on his website, you go onto YouTube, you can find all those videos of the inspirational videos. And it's so awesome to see that he's really helping out a lot of people with that. That's actually something I appreciate about the Richard Simmons videos is that the people he's got doing the workout with him are people that used his gym and they'll show you how much weight they lost. And some of those people lost like 200, 300 pounds. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic to see that, man. So, Tim, now that we got that out of the way, let's talk about your week. What have you been up to, man? Have you been actually got a chance to go outside? Yeah, obviously, you were talking about you got some furniture moved in, but did you able? Were you able to even leave the house this week? We drove to the grocery store. Yep. Yeah. So, not really. No, <laughs> that's about it. <coughs> so, uh, yeah, like the most eventful thing I really did this week is we got some furniture in including uh, Chelsea gr- Chelsea's grandma's old couch. And uh, that thing didn't fit through the front door. Oh, was it just too wide? Yeah, it's one of those... Uh, you know those couches they made, made in, like, the like the 50s or 60s that are these massive, like, velvet, velveteen things with the floral pattern and the actual wood construction? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, man. That's it's insane. So it's not one of those, like... 70s couches that were so tall and just very fluffy and had like the the very colorful patterns on them yeah yeah yeah. and they're like super like really really soft yes yeah it's like one of those they're built like a brick shit house for the internals so like yeah that thing's gonna last forever yeah that was like the couch we had in our basement for a lot of years and i know when my buddy moved into his place he's obviously moved back to ontario now but we gave him the couch and it honestly, it looked like an old Dixie cup. It was just like green and turquoise. <laughs> it was these weird fucking colors. And that's what he referred to it. He referred to it as the Dixie cup couch. Yeah, well, we got that thing. We basically had to rearrange our, like, the entire living room just because, uh, yeah, this couch is massive. There's an armchair that goes with it that's thankfully not as big as Chelsea thought it was, mm-hmm. but still quite hefty. And, like, you just kind of sink into it. So, and then we got like a coffee table and some other stuff as well. So we spent most of Sunday just getting all that stuff together. Okay. So but, uh, is it a very yeah. comfortable couch though? Oh yeah. Yeah. Is it one of these couches where you could basically fall asleep on it and you, and you wake up fine? Yeah, pretty much. Are you just assessing the situation so you could avoid the sofa bed you had last time? No. No. No, it was all right. Honestly, I was just thinking about that because usually those old school couches, like they're so comfortable that you literally could sleep on them and you would feel great. Yeah, no, I almost did. (laughs) So I'll talk a little bit about my week because honestly, not too, too much was crazy. I did end up going to the grocery store before it started snowing here and I actually found something. Uh And... We were talking about this a few years ago when I came up to Calgary, and you, you and Chelsea found the bag of the Lay's Southern Biscuits and Gravy Chips. <laughs> okay, so Pringles, they have a special flavor. It's the Wendy's Baconator Chip. Oh, we bought those for the Super Bowl. No, come on. Yeah. Was it any good? It was mystery snack number one. They taste exactly the way you think a simulated hamburger <sighs> chip wood oh my it god this is great i love this bacon bits and fake cheese <sighs> i honestly it saw was... that and i'm just like this is not real this is this is not real 
I saw that. It's like, there's no way this is a thing. We passed it. I'm like, no, I, we have to try this. So we circled back, circled back and uh, bought the damn things. And it was funny because at the same time, we had like one of our buddies, uh, one of his big things is whenever he's come back from Anime North, it's like on the drive back from Toronto to Ottawa, it's like we're stopping at this Wendy's that's uh, on the way. We're having Baconators. So I guess if you're listening to this, Anthony, we tried the chips. They're not good. I'm not surprised. I'm really, really not surprised. And I get... That's the thing. And you know what's funny? With our with uh, the guys over at Bodcast, I actually sent them the Amazon link to that Southern Biscuits and Gravy chip for cash it and trash it. And they said, just out of curiosity, they would try it. And Neil always said, he said, you know, you get one and they're super heavy. And just out of curiosity, right? You buy one, you try it out. I honestly wanted to send that to them. And I understand they have a rule about fans can't send in cash it or trash it. If you listen to that one episode, you know, thanks a lot, Ricky. But, you know, Ricky ruined it for the rest of us. But um, it was great. Honestly, I just saw that and I said, that's awesome. I got to tell Tim. So the only thing from my week, and I got to say, I was very, very disappointed this week in one particular person. So... You, you've known me for almost 15, 16 years now, and you know I've always been into uh-huh. music. And one genre of music I've always been into is 90s rock, especially 90s Canadian rock, whether it be, you know, The Watchmen, Age of Electric, uh, who else would I put on that list? Arlie Peace, obviously from like 93 to 2001. If there was ever a country that was killing it in the rock scene, it was Canada. One band in that category that i was super into and i've been into for a long time is the matthew good band well matthew good kind of got himself into some trouble this week so you're saying matthew good did bad yes good yes basically that's what i'm saying so matt good and this is coming off the heels from a few weeks ago wherein marilyn manson got accused of abuse and grooming and a few other things from his ex-wife Matt Good is also being accused of the same thing from his ex-fiance. Oh, jeez. And I just went, oh, come on, really? No. Great, I can't enjoy his music anymore, you know? And that's the thing, like, I've been a huge Matt Good fan for so many years, whether it be the Matthew Good band or his solo stuff. I mean, I was just thinking about this. Like I said, Canada was just killing it in the 90s when it came to music. And it wasn't just rock, it was... You know, it was country with Shania Twain. It was in the pop scene with Alanis Morissette. It was also in... I, I don't know what you consider Celine Dion. I guess... Alter, uh, al, uh, alt, uh, adult... Uh, adult pop. Yeah, adult contemporaries. That's the word I'm trying to think of. And so, yeah, Canada was just killing it. And the Matthew Good Band was one of those bands that, honestly... They could have, and they maybe should have been one of the biggest bands in Canada at that time. Because, you know, you think about it, it was a band that much music pushed pretty heavily. They were on those big shiny tune CDs. Matt Good was definitely a force behind that band. And the sad thing is, is that it was because of Matt Good. That's why they never became as successful as they should have been. Because he was so unpredictable. He was such a prick to the media. And even those little t-shirts from back in the day, it says, I heard Matt Good's a real asshole. Yeah. Which is funny, and I will give him that. And so I was thinking about that this week when I heard that story. 
And I read a little bit about it, and I was just like, oh, God, no, not Matt Good. And it's kind of ironic. For a guy who would have been so against cancel culture, cancel culture is trying to cancel him. Well, again, yeah, it sucks if it's true. Yeah. Well, the thing is, and I always know that Matt Good is bipolar. And I was, I reached out to a friend of the show who is involved with mental health, and I asked her about that. And I said, you know, because I know she's big into, like, the big shiny tune stuff and all that stuff. And I asked her point blank. I says, look, about this whole Matt Good situation, like, do you think him being bipolar and him not being medicated at the time may have helped or may have been a reason for that? And she just reached back. She says, basically what I got out of her was no, not really. Basically it's just Matt Good being an asshole. And I know she's very close with Jeremy Taggart. who used to be the drummer in early peace. And Jeremy has gone on the record as saying like, as long as he's known, Matt Good has always been such a tool to people, and he was such a prick to deal with. And even about five, six years ago, when I saw Matt Good live, I uh, went up to him and asked him for an autograph. He told me no and walked away. Damn. Yeah. And this is funny, because I was never an Our Lady Peace guy. You know, I always thought of him kind of overplayed, whatever, on much music. And then I met Jeremy Taggart. <laughs> and Jeremy's a great guy. He is funny. He's such a sweet guy. Obviously, Did he just, like, hug out with a bunch of you guys out front of Bowen Books once? Yes. Yeah, because basically he was there for a book signing. He just came up and goes, Hey, Bod, how are you? What's your name? And he shook my hand. I was like, Oh, hey, uh, Jeremy, how's it going? <laughs> so, honestly, that's just basically all I gotta say. It's just super disappointed in Matt Good. And, and it sucks because a lot of his stuff that I've listened to in the 90s is still so good. Whether it be from Underdogs or whether it be from The Last of the Ghetto Astronauts or some of his earlier stuff. So, that's basically all I gotta say, man. I'm just super disappointed in Matt Good if it's true. Obviously, I think I guess we can refer to him as Matt Bad now. Yeah, maybe. So, I don't know. I, I, I don't got too much to say. Very disappointed in Matt Good if this is true. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, Tim, with that out of the way, let's segue into this little segment I like to call Top of the Hour. Uh, I'm not going to lie. You know that the pink lemonade mix I have for my water bottle? It's actually not that bad. Not that bad. There's really no calories or sugar in it, so I'm happy. I'm always, like, a lot of those, uh, like, water flavor things, not bad. Yeah, not bad at all. So, Tim, we got to give a huge shout-out to former Minnesota Wild captain Miku Koivu, who announced his retirement at the age of 37. Koivu, drafted sixth overall by the Minnesota Wild in 2001, spent 16 seasons in the NHL with the Wild and Columbus Blue Jackets, recording 206 goals, 505 assists for 711 points in 1,035 games. He would win a silver and bronze medal at the 2006 and 2010 Olympics, respectively, and would also win the 2011 World Championships. Probably one of the biggest unsung heroes in hockey, and a source of stability on a series of pretty darn good Minnesota teams over the years. I would agree with that. And it's funny, because, yeah. you know, when you talk about Koivu, his older brother Saku is usually the one that always got mentioned. You know, he was the captain of the Montreal Canadiens, Played for a long time in Montreal. But the funny thing is, Tim, is that if you go back and you look at Miku Koivu's stats, 
They were way better than Saku's were. Oh, yeah. And I've always quietly been someone who thinks very highly of Mika Koivu. And he's a guy who's consistently putting up, like, somewhere between the high 40s to the low 60s in points every year. And then on top of that, he's always in the running for the Selkie. He is. And you know what? I didn't, I totally forgot about this. I didn't realize he was drafted in the top 10. I knew that he was kind of a higher ranked draft pick in Minnesota, but he's definitely one of those guys that he's, you're absolutely right. He's an absolute unsung hero in the NHL, but he's one of these guys that I think when you go back and look back on his career, super, super underrated. And I think because again, he didn't play on highly talented Minnesota wild teams offensively. They were known as good, but not great. And even that, and even that's when they got Ryan Suter and Zach Parise. They were still in that echelon of good but not great. And I think that was kind of the downfall for the Wild is that they didn't really have a great supporting cast around Parise or Suter in Minnesota. And it's sad because Mika Koivu was a brilliant player, and I think if he was on a better team, he probably would have won Selkies because he was always on the right side of the puck. And he was so good at driving play and just shutting things down when he had to. And I think that's just one of the things people will remember Mika Koivu for is just being this very strong player who could kind of just command the ice. But he wasn't flashy and didn't get you a ton of goals. No, he was actually a perfect representation of the Minnesota Wild, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, no kidding. New York Islanders head coach Barry Trotz moved into third on the all-time coaches win list with 850, passing Ken Hitchcock. Trotz worked as the head coach for the Nashville Predators from 1998 to 2014 and the Washington Capitals from 2014 to 2018, recording 850 wins, 622 losses for 60 overtime loss record at the time of this story. Honestly, Barry Trotz is probably one of the best coaches we've seen and just look at how he enhances every team he joins well i especially look at him like in Min- look at him in nashville right because nashville when he got there as an expansion team you talk about stability i mean really it was only barry and dave Poulier. that's all they had in that management group and of course you saw how far nashville went in the Let's see, 98 to 2014, so that would be 14 years? No? Yep. 14 years, okay. Yeah, so you talk about those number of years in Nashville. They went from the you know, the usual expansion, struggles, to making the playoffs, winning the division. The only thing Barry didn't do was take him to the Stanley Cup Finals. And he obviously got to do that with the Washington Capitals winning the Stanley Cup. And that's the one thing when, <clears throat> I think we were talking about this when him and Lou Lamarello got hired in the island, was that... I talked about, and you talked about, like, this is a great hire for the Islanders because you're talking about two guys in management who is so highly respected, but also has the hardware to back that up. And so that really brought Mm -hmm. stability, but also brought respectability back to the New York Islanders. Yeah, and, like, last year's run with a team that had no business going as deep as it did really just shows just how solid of a coach Barry Trotz is in getting team system play going. Toronto Maple Leafs forward Austin Matthews became the first player from the 2016 draft to record 300 points. Matthews, drafted first overall, is now 37th overall on the all-time Leafs point leaders. I feel like we've kind of said everything we can about 
this sort of news topic the last time we talked about it where we were kind of surprised I think so. Just kind of that Austin Watson's relative position to things, but also uh, another thing that is kind of interesting is just how spotty Patrick Line has kind of been. But it, it's not really spotty, I guess. It's just, I guess the first overall should be the first to pass the milestone. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, I know we talked about a lot about Austin Matthews last week, but one guy we didn't talk about last week was Cam Atkinson because Columbus Blue Jackets forward Cam Atkinson passed Rick Nash for first on the Blue Jackets shorthanded goals list. Atkinson, drafted 157th overall by the Columbus Blue Jackets in 2008, has four goals, six assists for 10 points in 15 games at the time of the story. I've always liked Cam Atkinson's game. It's simple but effective. He's definitely a guy that I didn't think much about. And then when the Blue Jackets started going on those deep playoff runs and I started following them is when I really came to appreciate what Cam Atkinson brings to the Blue Jackets. And I think when you look at that team that had Pierre-Luc Dubois and Seth Jones and Sergei Bobrovsky and obviously when Panarin was there, you saw the talent around him. But you're absolutely right. Very simple, very effective, and just one that pretty solid overall like i mean i have nothing to really talk about you talk about another franchise where they add stability when they brought in barry zito they brought in john davidson and obviously yarmo kekalainen you saw how far that they built that team up from where rick nash gets traded to 2021 where basically they're a perennial playoff team yeah and i do like following the blue jackets because they're they show that you can get it done without the star power. Yeah, I've always I've always had a soft spot for the Blue Jackets just because, one, they're just one of those teams you never, ever think about, but also the fan base is very respectful. And even when I got to see the Blue Jackets play the Canucks a couple of years ago, it's amazing. Like, there was a number of Blue Jacket fans in the building, and I was just like, wait, you're... Hey, what? the world is just Ohio. Yeah, I know. And it's not just Cleveland. But uh, that Central Division right now is a fucking murder ball, eh? Yeah. I think the only thing I could really say about my experience with Blue Jacket fans is the one guy that wore the Jody Shelley jersey. That's the mood. Respect to that guy. Respect to that guy. (laughs) So this next story, Tim, this really... You want to talk about a story that just came right out of left field... But also, this is a news story that you're waiting for the hockey world to just implode on itself because Pittsburgh Penguins have hired Ron Hextall and Brian Burke as the club's new GM and president of hockey operations. Hextall previously served in numerous front office roles, including GM of the Flyers and Los Angeles Kings, while Burke also served in in numerous front office roles for multiple teams, including president of hockey operations with the Calgary Flames. The Ron Hextall signing is very good. But at the same time, I'm really surprised that a guy who spent basically his entire career in and around Philadelphia to just go over to the Penguins. That's exactly what I was thinking of. That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm glad that you brought that up because as soon as I heard that Ron Hextall was going to Pittsburgh, I'm thinking, uh, what? Because think about it, Tim. Like, Third Line Plug is on a network full of Flyers fans. 
So this is just so awkward for them, right? Because Ronnie Hextall has been one of those guys. He's been such a fan favorite in Philly. And yes, if you talk to certain Flyer fans, like his time as GM definitely left much to be desired in the team. But again, not a bad hire in Pittsburgh. And I, I'm, it's really good to see that Mary Lemieux and these guys in Pittsburgh are not bowing down to the traditions in Pennsylvania of of saying like, yeah, well, why wouldn't we have an ex-Flyer run our hockey team? And why wouldn't we also have a guy that ran the Hartford Whalers? And why not, right? Teams that were in our division, in our conference, why wouldn't we do that? Yeah, no kidding. Like, the only other guys that I've seen that probably might have taken over Hextall would have been, I don't know, like Chris, I'd like the work Chris Drury's done but I'm not sure I'd actually take him over uh, Hextall. And then apparently Mike Gillis has turned over a new page from what people have seen from his presentation to the Pitts to Mario and the Pittsburgh selection team. It was a very future focus look for the, for the Pittsburgh penguin looking, really looking to exploit both analytics and areas where GMs don't, really look to try and get as much value for as little as they can so it's interesting because uh gillis's time in vancouver you can kind of see the formation of this strategy over his time in vancouver which did culminate in their stanley cup run so i think gillis might not have been a bad choice either if he's going full bore into money puck that is true, and you know what? There's always the argument that if you look at the Penguins in the mid-2010s, especially 2016 when they won the Cup, there was always the argument that the Penguins relied quite heavily on analytics, right? Because they went after these guys who didn't put up great you know, great numbers or whatever individually, but their Corsi number and everything analytic-wise was just fantastic. And they said, well, you know what? Let's take a chance at this. Well, what's so weird about... <laughs> the previous GM is just that his acquisitions in 2016 and 2017 were so good. And then it was just Rutherford making a bunch of unforced errors and then trying to rebuild them because like, you've got stuff like the absolutely bizarre uh, situation around. Why am I blanking on his name? Uh, One of the guys that used to play with Crosby. uh, Jack Johnson. Not Jack. Well, the Jack Johnson signing was a big one, but uh, uh, Winger, blank on his name now. Haglin. Yeah, no, it wasn't Carl Haglin. Uh, whatever, doesn't matter. Nick but Benino? basically, pardon? Nick Benino. No, not Benino. Benino's a center. But anyway, yeah. what happened is uh, they traded, it, and then they tried to trade back from, but they didn't realize that because yeah, he was part of the Tanner Pearson trade, but they didn't realize because they retained salary, they couldn't trade back from until. <laughs> His contract expired. I'm just, I'm trying to so think. It's just weird stuff like that. Yeah, I'm trying to think who that would be. Not Connor Sheary. No, it's not Sheary. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to go back to the Penguins because he was on the Penguins playoff team that won the St- Stanley Cup. Okay. Well, Tim, while you're doing that, we're going to go on to our next story. USA Hockey has named Chris Drury the GM for the 2021 World Championships. Drury will be assisted by a panel of advisors led by John Van Beesbrook and including David Poyle, Don Wardell, Stan Bullman, Jeff Gordon, Lou Lamorello, Bill Guerin, Tom Fitzgerald, Bill Zito, and Kevin Adams. First of all, it was Patrick Hornquist. Ah, Hornquist. Yes, okay, that makes sense. And then uh, 
that doesn't really sound like you have one GM, but you basically just Voltron all the American GMs. Yeah. And, you know, and it's funny when I'm looking at this list. Like, John Van Beesbrook, totally forgot about him. I remember him with the Panthers in the mid-90s. David Poyle, you know, we talked about him earlier in this episode. Don Waddell, who basically threw everything but the kitchen sink at Illy Kovacek to try and stay in Atlanta. Stan Bowman, I mean, just look at what he's done in Chicago. Jeff Gordon with the Rangers. Lamorello, we talked about him earlier. Bill Guerin's actually an interesting one because Guerin is another guy like Chris Drury who went from being a player to working his way up in management. It's not like some of these guys who were just given the keys to the kingdom and be like, here you go. Oh, by the way, I know you have no experience in what this, your job requires, but eh, you're an ex-player, so you play like 15 years, you'll be fine. <laughs> Tom Fitzgerald, I, I'm i sorry, I'm totally blanking on him. I think... He's with the Devils, right? Something like that, yeah. Uh, Bill Zito, he, was the, he used to work for the Blue Jackets. He actually worked in the front, man, front office. He was a former player's agent. And so when well, Zito's with Florida now, right? Yeah, he's the GM and I think he's the GM in Florida now. But the funny thing yeah. about Bill Zito is that there was a lot of people who were very critical when he got hired in Columbus, mostly because he was a player's agent, right? He was not management. But the thing is, if you look at the very smart and very team friendly contracts given to like the Cam Atkinsons, Seth Jones, Pierre Luc Dubois, Alex Texier, Bill Zito had a hand in that because he worked with Yarmo Kekalainen and he says no, well, why would you give this guy this much? I'm an ex-players agent. You should give him this much. And Kevin Adams, you know, he's a former player. He's in Buffalo now. Don't have much to say about him, to be perfectly honest with you, Tim. No, I've never really gotten the hate of arguing that agents shouldn't move into the GM role because, like, agents are, they're fantastic at negotiating. That's what they do. Yeah, and that's... Uh, I think if you pair them with someone that kind of knows a bit more of the team building strategy side they'll be a fantastic gm yeah because they also kind of know where like the trends of what players want to sign are going so you can kind of get an edge there like there's definite value to having an ex-agent as a gm well like i said just look at columbus right when they had john davidson who's the president of hockey operations kekalainen was the gm and you had bill zito helping Kekalainen, right? So, like I said, you saw how far they've built the Blue Jackets in the last decade, and he was a big reason for that. Although, I guess on the other end, you do have the LeBlanco signing from Gillis. That, yeah. They got too cute with that one. Well, I think before they inst installated the eight-year max, GMs were getting way too cute with that. When you really think about the fact that you know, the DPH row's got 15 years. Kolvachok was going to get given that year. Suter, Parise were given 12. I mean, I just, my, I couldn't wrap my head around that back in the day. But now I am, I'm so glad they have installed the whole eight-year max. Because that's stupid. Why would you give a guy 15 years, say he gets injured like DPH did, and now, oh, well, shit, he's now sitting on the bench for the next decade. We have to buy him out. Well, the risk the risk reward is the reward is if it plays out man it's good like getting a ovechkin basically over his entire prime inflation proof is fantastic so that's the risk reward yeah i'm honestly surprised pittsburgh never did that with crosby and that's the one thing because again crosby signed that eight year 87 million dollars i think it was like 8.7 which 
Okay, that's kind of cute. I'll give him that. But still, yeah, the Cavaliers were very, very smart. But there was yeah. definitely that risk. Even in 2008 when Kovach, not Kovachek, Ovechkin got that big contract because, yes, you're going to be signing over his prime, but how is this going to handcuff the team? Because the salary cap was not as high as it is now in 2008. No, but if you're betting against inflation, sorry, if you're betting in favor of inflation, you're going to win. Yeah, so yeah. obviously it, it worked out for them. And now that he's yeah. in his final year of his contract, it'll be very interesting to see what the Capitals are going to do with Alexander Ovechkin. Yeah, well, I think it, I, I think that contract was fantastic. Oh, come on. There's no way there's another contract that was better than that in his prime. Yeah, no kidding. NHL Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly has confirmed that the NHL is working on changing the draft lottery. This is coming after a number of GMs reportedly called on the league to increase the odds of winning the draft lottery for teams that finished lowest in the standings back in October. So here's one thought I was having about this, and then I do agree with, I can't remember who it was, somebody on Twitter was talking about this, because we saw how Tim Stutzla is doing in Ottawa now, and the fans have not criticized him, the fans are like, man, this is so great, he's being productive and all things. Could you imagine, Ottawa wins the first pick, Lafreniere goes there, and he plays the way he is now, we would have just tore him apart. Because honestly, what does he have, one goal? If that. But... I do kind of agree with this in a way because, you know, you looked at the last couple of years where outside of Toronto in 2016, the team that finished dead last did not win the draft. And thankfully, thankfully Ottawa did not win the draft in 2018 because I I couldn't even imagine Jack Hughes going to Colorado. I couldn't do it. But I do agree with this. But also, you also run the risk in a weird way of teams trying to tank. If that makes well, any sense. There's no problem with tanking. Like, and that's. Tanking's a strategy. No. Tanking was a strategy when there was no draft lottery in- installed. Now that there's well, a draft lottery, it's that's. It's a viable strategy still. Like, if you are the last team, you get to draft. The worst you can do is fourth. So, like, you might as well still strip the fucker down. Yeah. And I think. I just... have no. Pro- I honestly don't agree with penalizing teams that strip it down and just say screw it instead of trying to win we're gonna sell hope because say because the more you penalize rebuilding the less teams are going to do it so you're going to get a bunch of teams just stuck in mediocrity it's not good incentives just let the draft lottery go or maybe have a small lottery for the bottom three teams and let the chips fall as they do Teams, are, teams will be good, teams will be bad, and if a team wants to rebuild, let them tank. Well, my whole thing with tanking is that, you know, you almost run the risk of of it not being unsportsmanlike. Because now that you're, okay, so what? So what, we're going to not try every night to try and win? We're going to cheat the fans? And when we had Noodles on, Noodles talked about that in Toronto, we talked about that in Ottawa, about the dignified tank. And that part's okay with. When, you know, you see the team out there on the ice and they're giving it a really good effort every night. Yes, they're not going to win. Yes, they're going to lose by two or three goals, like we saw with the Sens last year. But the thing is, if you go back and listen to our episodes last season, Tim, is that the one thing we always talked about was, yes, the Senators lost by two or three goals, but they gave a really good effort, and it was entertaining to watch. If you tear the fucker down, they're going to, even if they give their best effort, they're still not going to win. Yeah, but the thing is, my whole argument, again, with tanking is that, okay, say you strip this team apart. 
doesn't matter what team it is. You strip it apart. You have players that realistically shouldn't be in the NHL. And they go out and they lose by three or four goals. And it's not competitive. The team's not competitive. You're cheating the fans. Yes. I mean, that's what the Senators did for the last four years. But, the, but here's the thing. And then, of course, you go into the draft water and think, oh, okay, we finished dead last. And we don't win it. This is yeah, where I'm so trying to get rid of the lottery. I totally, I'm fine with the lottery because honestly, I, I would rather have them have a lottery than watching teams deliberately tank. I would rather have them say like with the sense with a dignified tank. Okay. You're not good. We get that. But if you're purposely trying to lose, but the sends by organizational structure are purposely trying to lose. The moniker dignified just comes on because we're sends fans. The reason why people flip their shit about Buffalo doing it is because Buffalo is an American team in a city that even Americans don't really care about. Toronto did it. It was quote unquote dignified, even though you had basically the rump of a team. Yeah, that's fair. Honestly, I, I'm still in favor of having the lottery, and that's fine. Like, if you give teams a better chance to win, that's fine, but I don't want these teams to try and deliberately tank. I don't know. I think it's it's good for teams to go for a rebuild, and having punitive lottery odds like we do now disincents teams from rebuilding. The Arizona Coyotes have fired assistant GM and executive vice president of hockey operations, Steve Sullivan, after six seasons. Sullivan was hired by Arizona in 2014 and has worked in a variety of roles, including as development coach and GM of their AHL affiliate, the Tucson Roadrunners. Sorry, Tim, what were you about to say before I cut you off? Oh, nothing. Come on. Oh, no, I, I, I was done. Oh, Okay, sorry. I'm just, like I said, I'm looking at your screen, and honestly, it looked like you were about to continue. Oh, no, I was just, I realized that my phone unloaded <laughs> the top of the hour stories. Oh, so okay. I was just reloading that. Oh, okay. Okay, sorry, man. I thought you were trying to continue your thought. Never mind. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. So, the nice thing about doing this over Zoom, Tim, is that you've never actually seen me do the Mr. McVan voice. So... <laughs> Steve, we'd like to first of all thank you for all your service that you and everything you've done for the Arizona Coyotes. We hope for all the best. With that being said, though, Steve Sullivan, you're fired! Nice. It's been, it's been a while since I've done that. Honestly, I don't know where I stand on this because, number one, I did not realize that Steve Sullivan worked for the Coyotes. But two... It just kind of seems like they're firing everybody in Arizona and bringing everybody else in. I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Tim, because, you know, and we talked about John Chaika being fired. We talked about, or not didn't get fired. He obviously resigned. But we see some of these changes in Arizona, and it's just like, what is really going on there? We understand that now they're running into ownership troubles again because a lot of the money with the Coyotes is tied up in casinos and, you know, COVID-19 casinos went down. So... Overall, like, what did you think about this uh, move for the Coyotes, Dan? As far as the Roadrunners go, they've been uninspiring. Where they've basically been out of the pl- 
while it's like they were out of the playoffs two out of the last four years, although it looks like they might have made the playoffs had there been playoffs last year, Mm -hmm. what I'm guessing is Arizona just wasn't happy with the way that, and actually, oddly enough, of the four games that have been played in the 2020 season, Tucson's won all of them. They must not be either. They're not happy with uh, the way prospects are developing down there, which is fair. Or the new ownership or the new GM or whatever just wants to clean house and get something fresh. And I've been kind of happy with some of the people they've brought in. Like uh, the Lee Stepniak hiring seemed really good, Mm -hmm. but I'm not really sure about this one. No? Yeah, because it's not like the Roadrunners have been bad. No, and obviously they're not as good as, say, your beloved San Diego Gulls, who are in the same division, but... That goes well. Well, it's like 36 and 19 is a pretty respectable record for an AHL team. Like they were the top of their AHL division. Yeah. And I mean, I can understand why that you would become a golf fan, Tim, because you know, you guys have not had a losing season yet down in San Diego. Ha ha. I'm sorry. It'll never stop being good to me. (laughs) You know what? You know, one day when COVID's over that you will go down to San Diego and you will probably be like, yeah, let's go to a game. Why not? I don't think I have a reason to go to San Diego. Well, I think you might have to come up with a reason, Tim, to go watch your beloved goals. The only thing I could think of would be like SD Comic Con, but even then I'm not a comics guy. Really? Yeah, no. Don't care about Western comics at all. Hmm. Actually, sorry. Uh, can we go back here for a minute to talk about the Penguin story? Because we were talking about Penguin's ownership. I did not mention this. In top of the hour and any of the episodes we've done. Do you know Ron Burkle, who's part of the ownership group in Pittsburgh, bought Neverland? Like, like Michael Ma- Jackson's old estate? Yes. He's the owner. That's a, that's another story I thought I would hear. Yeah, this is why you tune into the Third Line Plug Sensecast, Tim. Is that, you know, you get to learn such great things is about why the owner of the Penguins now owns Neverland. What do you think he's going to do with the secret rooms? Trophy rooms. Trophy rooms. And a trophy carousel. Yes. Although, wouldn't it be more fitting if, uh, say, like, the Mighty Ducks have bought bought Neverland? Wouldn't that make more sense? Because they were more of a cartoon character? Maybe. But Disney's not involved no more. They not? No. They lost... Apparently, they lost a lot of money on the Ducks over the years when they did own up. So, I think we should move on to our final story, Tim, because we got an Ottawa Senators story to talk about. Whoa. The Ottawa Senators have traded Cedric Paquette and Alex Galchenyuk to the Carolina Hurricanes for forward Ryan Dezingle. Paquette and Galchenyuk recorded one goal in nine games and one goal in eight games for Ottawa, respectively. While Dezingle recorded two goals, two assists for four points in 11 games for Carolina this season can i add a little update to this story sure the toronto maple leaves have acquired alex galchenyuk <laughs> for Igor koroshoff oh and david warofsky <laughs> you know what tim the only <laughs> response i have to that is you know that meme of the black guy who smiles and he has the question marks around his head yeah that's basically my response when i heard that the Leafs traded for Galchenyuk because I'm just like, what? 
Well, it's funny because uh, what that means is that Galchenyuk doesn't actually have to quarantine anymore. He's not leaving Canada. I know. So that's actually not bad asset management by beliefs here. And uh, my understanding is that uh, he's probably going to the tax. Like Galchenyuk's going to be on the taxi squad for Ottawa. Yeah, so Galchenyuk doesn't need to quarantine. Korshov had 16 points. Korshov was someone that the Leafs picked that came back to. I think they have rights to him in the KHL. Selected by the Leafs' 31st pick in 2016, signed with the team in May 2019, scoring his only NHL. Scoring his only. He's played one NHL game. Warofsky 30 is a career AHLer. So what I'm guessing is that the Dzingel trade was pure salary dump for Carolina, and they're treating it like a fucking salary dump. I was actually more confused about this trade for a couple of reasons. Number one, I am very happy Cedric Packhat's gone. We do not have to bitch about him anymore. Galchenyuk, I just... I don't know how you felt. I felt they kind of didn't give him much of a chance to succeed in Ottawa because they always put him on the fourth line. The one chance I think they put him in the top six, he looked pretty good. And I was talking to Chris, who did our... Not the sense, he did the Habs season preview segment for us and i talked with him about that i'm just like i don't think ottawa put him in much of a position to succeed there so i will talk a little bit about dezingle because obviously ryan dezingle was one of my favorites when he played for the senators i always really liked him he was one that fans really got behind he was a 20 goal guy had some clutch moments in the 17 playoffs so i am really interested about dezingle because you are right it does look like it was a cap dump by Carolina, but also I often wonder, is Dezingle going to stay in Ottawa this time? Because, again, you look at how young our team is, he'll definitely fit in for sure, but I'm also of the mindset of, okay, he left once, what's the what's going to happen now? Is he going to well, stick around this he got dealt time? once, and that was fun. I love that trade by Pierre Dorian, honestly. Yeah, because we got Duclair. And it's kind of funny that that trade came full circle now that Ryan Dezingle is back. Yeah, so like... I'm and he took and he took Duclair's number 10 as well. Yeah, so I'm not worried about Dezingle leaving. And one of the funny things is that Dezingle's time in Carolina is weird because all of a sudden, what he was known for in Ottawa being this fast winger who was able to create some space in the offensive zone and yeah. put some pucks away just kind of disappeared. But at the same time, he just got he got a lot better defensively in Carolina. So, like, if we've got a fast guy who could reduce the amount of goals that are going in against and does a decent amount of expected goals for and can get that expected goals per hour back up a bit, I think, yeah, Zingle's a great player to have in the fold. Uh, with Galchenyuk, yeah, I agree. They don't. I'm not sure they gave him a chance. To succeed, but I think uh, Ottawa probably gets a little... I'm not sure if they get better or worse here. It's definitely a lateral... Well, no, they get better. They add it by subtraction. And it's really funny. uh, There's a quote floating around from a DJ Smith media interview the day before Paquette's traded. Paquette will enter the lineup and he will help us win. Oh, he's been very patient, that one? Yeah. And it's fantastic. 
I saw someone just put some photos together of uh, that quote and then a picture of Pierre Dorian looking concerned and then picking up a phone. (laughs) So, like, honestly, uh, I think this is pretty good asset management by Pierre Dorian because the original trade was to clear up the goalie logjam and get rid of an injury that uh, Ottawa couldn't do. Uh, And then, yeah, just Cedric Paquette. We turn two contracts into one contract. And then Carolina just throws all the money. Like, they reduced their salary exposure by taking on Galchenyuk and Paquette. And then, oh, goes Galchenyuk not even 24 hours later. Yeah, but you know what? This is also another sign that the veterans that Pierre Dorn has brought in is not working. And he clearly sees this when you see that Coburn's not here anymore, Paquette's not here anymore, I really hope that Branson's the next one to go because honestly, he's the single worst guy on our team. Man, I think he's like minus seventeen right now. Well, I think what's interesting is both. I think Coburn and Paquette were always intended for the taxi squad because they came over in a cap, like a cap and uh, log jam clearing trade. They obviously weren't intended for the team, and then they're gone. So I have, I have no problem with that. Galchenyuk, it's an experiment. They didn't give the experiment very much time. It didn't work out. Off he goes. And it's interesting that Carolina had no intention of actually playing the damn guy. Because this looks like the sort of trade that they hunted out. Given that the the return is a prospect and a a career AHL. And I wouldn't be surprised if Cedric Paquette's already hit waivers or is already they are looking for a way to send him out the door. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we'll have to wait and see the next day or so how they're going to play yeah. out with Paquette. The Derek Stepan situation is its sad. It's sad, but it's understandable because, again, he wouldn't be able to see his family till what, May? If May, that. yeah, so it's like, it's really rough. And then Dadunov's starting to heat up, and we'll talk about it this week. So out of all the veterans that were brought in it, I think Dadanov is actually working out. Yeah, Murray's getting better, but, you know, absolutely Dadanov is the guy that we're definitely going to talk about in these games here this evening. Well, with that being said, Tim, I guess that closes out top of the hour for this week, which can mean only one thing. It's time we're going to talk about the games. Now, we've got four games to talk about. We've got two games versus the Oilers at home and two games with the, against the Jets in Winnipeg. But before we do that... Let's hit the music. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> okay, Tim, let's start talking about the Oilers versus the Senators. This is a 3-1 to one Oilers victory. Oilers goals are scored by Leon Dreisaitl, Tyler Ennis, and Josh Archibald. Sens goals are scored by Evgeny Dadunov. Shots were 35-28 for Edmonton. Evgeny Dadunov scores to make it 1-0 Senators after Brady Chuck flips it in between two Oilers defensemen. Leon Dreisaitl scores to tie the game at 1, going 5-hole on Murray. Tyler Ennis scores to make it 2-1 on a curl-and-drag play. And Josh Archibald buries the empty netter to make it 3-1 Oilers, which would be the final. So I had to condense watch this game, obviously because last Monday when we were recording these the two episodes the game was on so that's why i didn't get a chance to watch it well it's funny because ron even asked us if we were watching the game i know it's so fun that you get to break some kayfabe there tim and just be like hey ronnie hex or ronnie hex 
Why would Ron Hextall ask us about this Sens and Oilers game? He doesn't even play for either of those teams anymore. But that's funny. I actually kind of forgot about that too, that Tiger asked us about that. But overall, it was just the game seemed a bit lethargic. And neither team really threw up that great of an effort. Well, there was a couple of guys who put up a really good effort in this one. Matt Murray being one of them. 32 saves, a .941 save percentage. Just a fantastic outing for him in this game. And the thing I like about him in this game is that he saw a lot of really good shots. It wasn't like he was seeing shit shots from outside or whatever. He saw a lot of really good shots. He looked calm, cool, and collected from what I was seeing. And honestly, I'm very happy that he has been able to find his game recently. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because uh, Edmonton was basically playing with 19 players the whole game. Zach Cassian played maybe a minute. So what, he's basically so you can... a young guy in the Sens now? What is this? like? <laughs> but yeah, Mike Smith, I don't think he was tested too hard. Most of Ottawa's shots were coming from the point. True. But uh, yeah, like Murray, Murray kept the game close. He did, and definitely when you watch, especially with the games we've seen versus Edmonton, is that the Oilers definitely have a lot of good shots like this. And either the goalies moved out of position or it goes right through them. So it is kind of nice to see that Matt Murray, like I said, has been able to find his game and he looked fantastic in this game. Of getting down and off. One goal on two shots. This fucking goal. Though I was gonna say the one comment I have about this goal is honestly, it looked like Adam Larson had scored on his own goalie in that one. It's because Adam Larson basically scored on his own goalie in that one. But honestly, one year snake bitten. You need one just to get the monkey off your back. You don't care how. You don't care why. You just take it. The only and other... Go ahead. Dad the fucking took it. He did. He definitely took it. And the funny thing about that is that a lot of the goals he scored so far for the Sens have been like that, right? Where a guy ties him up or he goes face first into the boards. Hmm. Although, in the next two games... He scores a really nice goal with Colin White. He does, man. He does. So the only other comment I got on this, Brady to Chuck with three shots. I thought he was credited for an assist on the Dadanoff goal because, again, he flipped it, which the closest goal that reminded me of, again, was the Carlson Hoffman play because, you know, he flipped it over two defensemen. Not obviously not as nice as that one, but I really liked how he played in that game. Uh, just a typical Brady game as far as I can really say, man. Yeah, and uh, I hope Brady finally gets some goals because he really should be scoring more. I know. Because he is, he is just in the right spaces at the right times, doing the right thing. Otherwise, yeah, not a probably not the best effort from the Sens. Matt Murray played a fantastic game. That's all I really got to say. Let's move on to the second game of the evening. The Oilers versus the Senators. This is a 3-2 to two Oilers victory. Oilers goals are scored by Darnell Nurse. Evan Boucher, and Tyson Berry. Sens goals are scored by Connor Brown and Evgeny Dadunov. Shots were 42-22 for the Senators. Connor Brown opens the scoring for Ottawa to make it 1-0 on a deflection from Nikita Zaitsev. Darnell Nurse with a softy five-hole goal to tie the game at 1. Evan Bouchard scores to make it 2-1 Oilers through a screen. Tyson Berry scores to make it 3-1 after Hogberg slid himself out of position. Yeah, we've definitely seen that one before. And Dadunov scores to make it 3-2 Oilers, which would be the final. So this is another game I had to condense watch because I was editing the Ron Tugnet interview 
that evening. I do want to talk about the centers a little bit. Because outside of Hogberg, I really did like how they played in this. The compete level was there. And that's one thing I have talked about in the last couple of weeks. Is that the compete level's not been there. Excuse me. Multiple players had a number of shots. But I do agree with your assessment, Brady Tashak. And I agree with this a lot of guys. Like they're so snake-bitten. Is that they're getting a lot of chances. They're getting a lot of really good shots. They're just not being able to bury them so far. Well, what's kind of fun is that I think the Senators... They were flying. They were at five on five, and at evens, they were where they needed to be. They were getting good shots. They were really controlling the tempo of play. And yeah, they just couldn't score. Like they got three expected goals to Edmonton's two. If everything worked like it does in a, a nice model with uniform priors and or normal priors and normal distributions, all that jazz, Ottawa would have won this game. And I think Ottawa played Edmonton, but. Yeah, just they're they're absolutely snake bitten right now. I know. And then uh, Hogberg really didn't help. No, he didn't, and especially on the which goal was it? The Evan Bouchard goal where he slims off in a position. If you remember, it was also against the Oilers. Matt Murray did the exact same thing, and we talked about that on the show. I can't remember what episode it was. It was in the last few weeks, but I do agree with you. Hogberg has been kind of he's not been good. No. He's not been good. I really, like I said, I really did like how they played. But one guy that really stood up for me was Evgeny Dadanoff once again. One goal on six shots. I am very, very happy that he's been able to find his game with the Senators. Yeah, and this was a really nice goal. Like, just very patient. It was nice setup, nice release, and they hashtag scored on it. They scored on themselves. Yeah. Like, just a good, good wrister from right in front of the net. And that's what, this is what we brought Dadnob in to do. Push yeah. the tempo, score. Gotta love it. The Shabbat Zaitsev pairing was good. They really did a good job of keeping down the McDavid line. And that's hard to do. Like, they kept McDavid off the score sheet. They did, and that's the one thing that it's so hard, but they get him and... Uh, did they keep Drysaddle off, too? They did, too, yeah. Yeah, that's that's impressive, because those two have just owned us so far in these games that he played against us. I do... And, like, here's the thing. Got... Ottawa would have won this game if Hogberg didn't have a sub-80 save percentage. Like, you can't blame the young guys on this game. No. But you know what, Tim? There's always the argument that... Even if Hogberg had had a good game, the Oilers could have beaten us like one nothing. There's always that argument, right? But however, like I said, the Sens have not been able to bury those chances, and I think that's really what's hurting them. They got they got the two goals. They got he's got two goals. They probably should have gotten a third mm-hmm. if they had gotten league average goal tending from Hogberg or just ran Matt Murray the whole night. Ottawa probably takes this game, like straight up. This is a loss you can blame you blame on the goalie. Oh yeah. Big time. Big time. Big time. Let's move on to our third game of the evening. Senators versus Jets. This is a five to one Jets victory. Sens goals were scored by Josh Norris. Jets goals were scored by Paul Stasny, Nikolai Ehlers, Blake Wheeler, Matthew Perron, and Neil Pionk. Shots were 42-26 for Ottawa. 
Winnipeg outplayed Ottawa in this game. Ottawa played a great first period, outshooting Winnipeg 17-9. However, as the game went on, Winnipeg began to capitalize on their scoring chances as they eventually took a 4-0 lead, which they would retain to the W. So I did partly condense watch this game as well. I did watch the first period, but then I fell asleep and I never got back to watching this. We got to talk about one specific note in this game. And I went back and I found it on our messenger. This yep. is from February 11th, 5.42 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Okay. We are out shooting Winnipeg 17 to 6. Dot, dot, dot. How many goals do we lose by? Question mark. Tim responds. Murray's in net. So possibly to probably 2 nothing. One of them being an empty netter. Tay responds. I predict 2-1. Could Branson score somehow? 6.15 Pacific Center time. Roll eyes <laughs> emoji. Now I just need Gabranson to score. You responded with, I mean, my empty netter is out. Lol. I said, yep. Gabranson has three shots. Lol. What the fuck? Pretty much. And yeah. here's what's weird. Actually, sorry. Can I say one more thing on this? Yeah, yeah. One of my coworkers, the one I was talking about from a few episodes of the Canucks fan, she had the game on. And I mentioned that to her and she started laughing. She goes... Hey, Tay, I predict they're going to lose by four goals. And I'm like, shut up, Sarah. Then they lose five to one. And I went, ha, they didn't lose four nothing. They lost five to one. That's not the point. I walked away. Yeah, fair enough. But uh, what's really interesting about this game is like the Senders came up fucking flying in that first period. And oh, yeah. Connor Hellebuck stole, probably stole the game there. Yeah, and this is a guy that we have never been able to beat. And that's the one thing that I talked about in the Jets games is that we've never been able to beat Connor Hallebach. And he is one of my favorite guys. I've mentioned that on the show. But the one thing I do want to mention about this game is, you know how in the last game we said that this was on the goalies? This game. This one, to me, was on the goalies. Both Hogberg and Matt Murray did not look good in this game. I can't even blame our defense on this. Because honestly, when I look at those goals, the goalie should have had those. Yeah, I think the only thing you could really say you could really blame the team for is that second period lull that did give Winnipeg a lot of momentum. Mm -hmm. And credit to the team, though, they do come back in the third. But, yeah, that second period lull really, really gave Winnipeg a chance to get back into this one, and the goaltenders couldn't really bail them out. Because that first period was, that was insanity. Like, the Senators were absolutely buzzing. And they end up coming out of that with nothing because, and like, there were so many beautiful, beautiful chances. And yeah, just nothing. I do want to talk about Josh Norris because he had one goal and three shots. And I know you can't see my screen right now, Tim, but in my note, I just say classic Taylor G drop in goal off the post and in. Because honestly, it looked like me playing drop in once again, because honestly, it was more of a scramble and he buries it. Now, when I play drop-in hockey, I don't make a move to score. I sort of swat at it and hope that it hits the post <laughs> and goes in. So I, I was very, very happy with that goal. The other comment I got to make on this actually came from Jets head coach Paul McClain. Uh, Paul Marie, sorry, not Paul McClain. Is that at the end of the first period, he did, it might have even been in the first interme- in the first period when he talked about Tim Stutzla. I really wish the Senators would say stuff like that about him because he even commented in that game. He's just like, this kid's incredible. Like when he really fills out, he's going to be next level good. 
Oh, yeah. And I can't, for the life of me, understand why the Senators aren't doing this. We see this every night. Our, our opponents are saying this about Stutzla. And I am very disappointed he didn't score in any of these games because I really want to do my Stutzla voice. But, you know, it wasn't very good the last time I did it. <laughs> so, so I don't know how... Yeah, no. Sorry, back's a little sore. So do you have any more comments you want to make on the, that game before we head off into the fourth goal evening? Brady Kachuk, man. He really deserved a goal, especially with that beautiful wrister pings off the iron. Yeah, oh, there was a few there was a few goal, few moments in that game that really we should have buried it, but it went off the crossbar or went off the post. Yeah, no. Honestly, I really liked Ottawa's game in this one, except for that second period. Yeah. And uh uh, Zaitsev crashing into Murray. Yeah. On that third goal, that's the Nikita Zaitsev we know and love, and Murray's out for God knows how long. Well, he hopefully not too long. No, he might be playing this week, so we'll have to wait and see on that. Oh, one. that's good. That's good. Yeah. You know, Tim, we talked about the first game of this evening. We talked about a loss. Let's talk about a win. Sens versus Jets. Did we do that. A two to one Senators victory. Senators goals were scored by Evgeny Dadanoff and Brady Tuchuk. Jets goals were scored by Mark Shifley. Shots were 31 29 for Winnipeg. A fast paced and entertaining game from start to finish. Winnipeg began the game out shooting Ottawa with their strong offensive attack. As the game progressed, Ottawa's offensive attack got going and began to match Winnipeg in the nail biter, which would calm down to Ottawa getting the W in the dying seconds. Marcus, Harbor, Marcus Hogberg, 30 saves at .964 save percentage. This was a great bounce back game for him. Especially because when you watch against the Jets, you were just like, oh, for God's sakes. Like, this is brutal. But it was very nice to see him have a good bounce back game in this one. And he made several key stops that included not just showing Hogberg's athleticism, which is definitely there, but his positioning has gotten better since that awful game at Edmonton. Uh, he's keeping it his net more, and he seemed more situationally aware in the matinee game. The biggest save that he made that I really liked was that big lunging glove stick where he stops exactly where he needs to, snags the puck, and it's down. That's highly real material, and that's and it was very controlled, which is not something you can say about Hogberg for the last two weeks or so. No, you couldn't. You couldn't really even say that about Murray outside of his bounce-back games he's had so far. Evgeny Dadunov, how many times have we mentioned him in this episode, Tim? Pretty much every game. And this was a beauty fucking goal. One goal on three shots. The guy was in the zone for most of this game. Well, the pass from Colin White. Ooh, chef's kiss stuff. Like, Colin White's just skating up. He's Dadunov streaking. Just a nice wired pass to Dadunov. Yeah. I, I think Colin White and Evgeny Dadunov have been Ottawa's best forwards honestly once Stutzla gets rolled like Stutzla and Batherson get rolling again Ottawa's gonna have a lot of weapons to choose from with uh Kachuk Norris Batherson Norris Batherson Stutzla Dadnov White Mm -hmm. that's a solid top six and then you have Nick Paul and Connor Brown that can slot up if you need them to Connor Brown really shouldn't slot up and this is actually something that was interesting that uh, the commentators were talking about during this game is that Connor Brown's shot is, they meant, called it oddly 
right. where it's this very, it's serviceable, but it's not going to do you all that much. So, like, I can, I really like Connor Brown in the top nine, but I hope that the other top six options start rolling a bit better. And with White and Dadanoff, it definitely looks like they are. Yeah, Connor Brown has been a guy that I, I really, really wish he would get his game going because you know what? He's one of these guys, I'm trying to remember the guy off the top of my head. Uh, was it Regan? Remember back in the day that he would go on a breakaway and he wouldn't even score? Condra? Condra, that's who I'm thinking of. It was Eric Condra. Yeah, he was like one of those guys that he wouldn't bury it. The one comment about Connor Brown, I don't have him at all in any of my notes, but the one comment I do have to make is that I sent a tweet out the other day to sense DJ Alex Marchant, and I says that sometimes I like to sit back and think that one day Connor Brown is going to score on a breakaway. Sends DJ Con- Alex Marchant is going to play D'Lo Brown's theme, and he's going to give it what you get, just like how D'Lo Brown would come down to the ring, he would do his like head back and forth and all that stuff. And Alex responds to me as well. Everyone's got dreams. <laughs> one thing I got to give a thumbs up for. DJ Smith's ice time allotment. Good Branson. Only 16 minutes this game. Good stuff. Now, Tim, Watson, I... Watson, and Artem Anisimov. 10 minutes. The least of the forwards. Good stuff. Now, I got to ask him. Now, are you going to give him the traditional yeah. thumbs up? Or are you going to give him the Orange Cassidy thumbs up of? I think we could do both. Uh, actually, one thumbs up. One thing that I would hope to see is a bit more Christian Willanen, but can't have at all. Especially because Mike Riley had a really good game. He did, actually, in this game. I really liked how Mike Riley played. Another guy who I thought looked really good in this game was Brady Tuchuk, who had a goal on two shots. I still can't believe we scored in the dying seconds of that game. I was just like, holy crap, because this is a game that really... The term... It was anybody's game. Could have been Ottawa's. It could have been Winnipeg's. It ended up being Ottawa's. Nice thing about this game, Tim. You know how in the last game we're talking about how we could never beat Connor Hellebuck? Very first time we've ever beaten Connor Hellebuck. We finally beat Keller Hellebuck. Let's talk about this. Yeah, like this was a tight game and it was fun to the end. It is. Let's talk about the sensor a little bit. Um, What do we got here? Overall, I thought they looked pretty good in this game. They didn't panic. They were very patient. And the goaltending was confident, which is great. Yeah, no. Hogbert had a much-needed bounce-back game, as we've already said. Funnily enough, the only players I really didn't like on the Sens was Shabbat and Zaitsev. Yeah, but how often do you really say that about Shabbat, though? It's so weird, right? When you Yeah, they spent way too much time in their zone. Like, whatever was happening, it just wasn't working for them. It's true, man. It's true. So, I was going to say we can probably close out the games for another evening, but the only comment I have, and I should have, I wanted to mention this last week. Ottawa's reverse retro jersey. What is your honest thought on that jersey now that we've seen it on the ice? We've seen all three of them. Like, what do you think about our reverse retro red jersey? Because I have my comments. I really like it. I'm not as high on it. Like it? I'm not as high on it. I don't know what it is. And it's, it's, I gave it the fair chance of like, okay, let's see how it plays when it hits the ice. Cause yeah. again, there was a lot of people who didn't like the silver. O 
Heritage Sens jersey. I think it looks great, but I do kind of see where people may not like it. The reverse retro jersey, I don't know what it is. I think maybe because I'm not a fan of the black lettering on the red jersey. To me, it just looks very flat. It doesn't stand out on TV. And I'm just not a big fan. I'm not a fan of like the all red with black. If it, if it had maybe a little bit of gold or maybe a little bit of white to kind of differentiate from the colors, that would have been kind of cool. But the thing is, is that I'm not a fan. I really not crazy about that jersey, Tim. I can see why you don't like the lettering. I'm actually surprised they didn't go with white. Yeah, I think what maybe it could have maybe helped the black pop a little bit more if they had the gold outlining. Maybe that could have helped, but again, I'm not crazy. Just because it doesn't look good on TV when you watch it, maybe if there was fans in the stands and you saw it in person, maybe someone, you know, my opinion would be much different on it. But again, watching it on TV, it doesn't look very good, number one. I think the black looks awesome. The white jersey was one that I know Trevor Shackles and I had our talk about on Twitter is that I didn't know how that one was going to look. And then you saw it in game and it's like, okay, that's pretty cool looking. The red one, I'm not crazy about. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll grow on me. Maybe it'll grow on me. Because you know my takes on jerseys. Like, again, when you look at the the King Stadium jersey from last year, I was very high on it to begin. But it, the more that I saw it, the more that I saw pictures of it, I saw live footage, I wasn't crazy about you it. You kind of cooled on it, right? Yes. In the same way that when these reverse retro jerseys were announced, I was very upset that the Islanders didn't bring back Captain Highlander. But that's just me. And Jamie McClendon. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's... Uh, I'm pretty happy with uh, the jersey. I, I, I guess I'm a sucker for the, the red field with black highlights. It would have been nice with some gold. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, Ottawa... We need more Senegal. Yes. Yes, we do. But you know the thing is, Tim, is that you look back in the Sens history, we've always done really good red jerseys. If you look at the original 3D ones, which I don't think the logo has aged very well, the jersey looks really cool. And I really, oh, yeah, with the black swoosh? Yes, th- you know. That's, that's king stuff. It's so good. Even the, the more recent 3D reds. I, I understand. Fans may not like it. I'm kind of the minority on it. I think it's an okay-looking jersey. I think because I like the logo. I think maybe because I, I prefer that logo to the original 3D logo. Because I think it looks a lot cleaner. It looks a lot better. But I am very happy they went with the 2D logo. I am happy they went back to black because honestly, in the old, uh, what the fuck were we? Uh, the Atlantic Division last year, how many teams in our division had red? Was us, Florida, Detroit. Detroit. There was three of us. Oh, and the Habs. And the Habs. So that's four. So I can see oh, why we went back to the black. Although I will say yeah, about yeah. Florida, did you see their reverse retro jersey in action? Ooh, that's nice. Oh. Ooh. So good. So good. So, Tim, I don't have any more comments to make on this game if you just want to head off into the close for another evening. Yeah, let's do it. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug, Sanscast. I hope you've enjoyed it because, believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. We're on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network. We can find our links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play we're also on Twitter at Third Line Plug is our Twitter handle. Tim is at M901 Honey Badger. I'm at Great White Gipster, GR8WYTE Gipster. 
If you want to shoot us an email to talk about the games, top of the hour, or you just want to shoot us an email to say what's up, shoot us an email. ThirdLifePokesNoscast at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you're listening to us on iTunes, please listen, rate, and subscribe, and give us that five-star rating. So, Tim, we got to talk about the games for the week because they're all Battle of Ontario. Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we are playing the Leafs in Toronto. I guess you can say for those episodes, Tim, it's a lot of Toronto. But you know what? I guess you can honestly say for those games that we're going to have a SmackDown and Lockdown. SmackDown and Lockdown. Let's go. Yeah. Now, before we close out for the other evening, let's get a quick update here on the Sens and Leafs. Currently... The Sens are losing 5-4 to four to the Toronto Maple Leafs in the final minutes of the third period. Honestly, pretty damn good. Oh my god, can you imagine that we come back to win 6-5? That would be A, stupid, B, are the Toronto Maple Leafs even allowed to be a team anymore? No. No, I'm good. Oh! I think Dadnoff just scored. Oh, sweet baby Jesus. 5-5, five, five, baby. The Leafs are trash. Until next time, guys. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Jensen. Go Sens, guys.